we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Episode 8, Building a Strong Regional Economy, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Japkin. We hope you enjoyed our special Election Day episode with Dr. Gerald Benjamin and his daughter, Liz. The conversation rivaled the reality of 2020, which is hard to do these days. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to patternforprogress.org slash podcast. And remember to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, and Stitcher. In this week's Pattern and Paradigms trend, we continue to focus on office space. The Wall Street Journal this past weekend observed that tech startups are are subletting space, breaking their leases in some cases, and negotiating for lower rents. Manhattan's overall office leasing is on target to have the lowest volume in the past 20 years. We ask, trend or bubble? And we maintain that when this economic uncertainty ends, it will be in the middle. We don't go back to the office five days a week, not with remote work, but we also do not stay home all week long, not with a desire to get out of the house. This is going to require some creativity as workers in urban centers are needed, customers for small businesses and passengers to make the economics of mass transit work. This week, our guest is Laura Cabral director and research associate professor at the University of Buffalo's Regional Institute. The Institute is part of the School of Architecture and Planning. Laura is here to discuss their forthcoming report, which covers supporting stronger regional economies for all, an issue near and dear to Pattern for Progress. The report has four core focus areas seeking improvements in the Buffalo region, placemaking, workforce, sustainability, and innovation. But before Laura, let's ask Pattern's Joe Chaika. What's up, Joe? Thanks, J.D. Every day, we get closer and closer. You may ask, closer to what, Joe? Well, let me tell you. Next week, starting on November 16th, Pattern is kicking off our 13th annual housing forum. The forum gathers leaders and professionals from across the Hudson Valley in the fields of affordable housing, community development, real estate, government, planning and engineering, and community lending together in a summit style to discuss current challenges, trends, and policies that impact the Hudson Valley region. 
We've been promoting this event on our website through social media, and I'm sure everyone has received many emails from us with the links to the event page. Our forum is totally virtual and has been designed to cover five major elements of housing and community development, including home ownership, multifamily housing, gentrification with a balanced development, the real estate market, and equity, diversity, and inclusion. The virtual forum is hosted over five consecutive days with a two-hour session each day. Each day's session will have three components, a keynote, a panel, and a solutions lounge. You may ask, hey, Joe, what's a solutions lounge? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Let me give you, perhaps, first, a little context to this. Like we say in our fellows class, words count and context matters. At Pattern, it is critical to our board and to us as staff that when we examine an issue and prepare recommendations and strategies, we need to move the dial. What does that mean? Well, we measure our success by making a difference in our communities, or like I said, moving the dial forward. Typically at the end of a keynote address and a panel discussion, forums usually have a few questions and answers, and then everyone, well, they sort of go away. The goal of the Solutions Lounge is to take a deeper dive into the challenges identified in the panel discussions and look to answer the question, so what are we gonna do about it? In other words, move the dial. Registrants from the forum will have the ability to select what days they want to attend, or they may choose to attend the entire week. I wanna talk a little bit about the speakers and the panelists. Let's start with Monday. Monday will focus on chasing the American dream of home ownership. Karen Hoskins, National Director of Home Ownership for NeighborWorks America, will provide us with a state of home ownership, discussing the impacts of COVID on homeowners and on housing organizations, the pending foreclosure concerns for 2021, current challenges, including first-time buyers looking into entering the market and existing owners trying to hold on to their home. These challenges have been exacerbated during today's economic crisis, and the financial fallout for owners is staggering. How can we learn from the housing crash of 2008? A different economy, a different time in our history, but yet there will be solutions from what we've learned. With real estate prices skyrocketing in the Hudson Valley, the American dream of owning your own home remains elusive for many residents. Karen will then join the panel for a conversation about the importance of home ownership and introduce potential solutions for the Hudson Valley region, which we can then carry forward into the Solutions Lounge with our panelists, Kevin O'Connor from RepGo and Dina Levy from New York State Homes and Community Renewal. On Monday evening, the Center for Housing Solutions is honored to host Diane Yentel, CEO and President of the National Low Income Housing Coalition based in Washington, DC. As keynote speaker, she will discuss housing from a national perspective. 
Diane has decades of experience working in housing and dedicating a large part of her career toward helping those in need by being a strong advocate for housing policy. On Tuesday, we will be joined by Ruth Ann Bisnoskis. She's the commissioner of New York State Homes and Community Renewal. Ruth Ann will provide us with an update on housing from, from the state in terms of programs, initiatives, and perhaps what to look for in 2021. Tuesday's panel will be moderated by Sadie McEwen from the Community Preservation Corporation. The panel includes Luis Aragon, Commissioner of Planning in New Rochelle, three developers working in affordable and market rate housing development, Ken Carney of the Carney Group, Lisa Caseman from Conifer, and Jeffrey Nelson of RXR. Darren Scott from New York State Homes and Community Renewal will also be joining us. The panel will discuss dynamics of the multifamily housing market in terms of finance, changing market demands, property management and design, and the impact of the moratorium on evictions. Wednesday's program will dive into gentrification with balanced development, investment in the revitalization of our urban centers without displacement has been a long-standing challenge in the Hudson Valley. While many of these improvements as an important evolution to their success are finding some, well, let's say, left behind and wondering how they fit into changing communities and how can they afford to remain. The region is facing the challenges with balancing demographic shifts, balancing growth, and balancing residents' needs. All of that will be discussed. Ed Poteet, president of Carthage Advisors, adjunct professor at Columbia University, and an author, will kick off the day's events as our keynote speaker. Our panel, moderated by Graham Trellstead, will include Guy Kemp from Rupco, David Garten of RXR, and the mayors of Beacon and Kingston, for which both cities are witnessing varying levels of gentrification. On Thursday, we're going to be joined by the Hudson Valley real estate leaders for a real estate market update. Mike Kingzella, the executive director of Up for Growth, based out of Washington, will deliver a keynote discussing impacts of housing, inventory, pricing, and the demographic shifts away from large urban centers to the surrounding suburban and rural areas. Mike will link these issues with economic development, housing affordability, and balanced growth. We will hear from local and regional leaders in residential real estate market discussing demand, supply, value, and lending. We will hear from two real estate attorneys, Paula Kay and William O'Keefe. We will also have Bill Calderera from Ulster Bank and Joe Rand from Howard Hand, Howard Hanna Rand Realty. Joe's a regional expert in the real estate market and is an extremely dynamic participant on this panel. Friday's focus will be on race, diversity, equity, and inclusion in community development and housing. Our keynote speaker is Dr. Don Trahan Jr. He is the Director of, of Race, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, what they call READY, for NeighborWorks America. 
Dr. Trahan will, fr will frame the conversation about READY and link each day's themes together to understand the implications of READY in community development, in housing, and on the impacts within the organizations working in this industry and other industries. Dr. Trahan will also lead us through a question and answer period along with a real life practicum during the Solutions Lounge. As the country is faced with enormous challenges in health, education, access to capital, and the overall economy, the housing crisis is becoming even more difficult to solve. The forum begins about five days away from today. So go online, go to our website, and you'll see tickets are available, and I hope to see you there. The event is promised to be a great, great week. Hi, Laura, and welcome to the show. Um, this is Patterns and Paradigms, and uh, we're delighted to have you with us. Uh, tell us a bit about the Buffalo Regional Institute. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so the University of Buffalo Regional Institute, we're a research center under the UB School of Architecture and Planning. Uh, there are about 14 of us, mostly urban planners, um, some lawyers and an architect on our team as well. Uh, we were founded more than 20 years ago uh, by John Sheffer, who was an assembly member who really wanted to study public policy in the region and really think about regional economies. And then we also were merged with uh, Dean Robert Shibley's uh, urban design project. So they had been doing uh, really important work in the region thinking about regional economy, uh, thinking about placemaking within the regional economy and the importance of it uh, for many years. So we've been, uh, I've been there 11 years and uh, we've been fo very focused on economic development in the region, uh, especially partnering with the Regional Economic Development Council here uh, in the Western New York region. Um, so as a, as a person on the other side of the state, the three things that come to mind first when you think about Buffalo are Wings, uh, the Bills, who are good this year, um, and of course, snow. However, I'm going to have to admit to the fact that I was recently in Buffalo and said, you know, Buffalo Billion, other things that have been investment and people have been working on it. And it was for my eyes, and so you can correct my eyes, um, uh, the, the river, uh, the the uh, lakeside, I guess it would be, uh, clearly looked like um, quite substantial investment, people walking around, um, and that uh, there was something different. And I'll also say, since we do a lot of data work, you were starting to actually show an increase in, in uh, a younger demographic. And, and I would say that to all the people that wanted to be a little snarky about Buffalo, you're wrong. What do you think? I hope that everyone feels that way if they come back. I think people who haven't been here in a long time, I could see why your impressions would be different. Uh, I think the last 10 years especially has been a time of growth for us, new growth. Um, and that's not something we're used to here. Uh, and we did have uh, a swing in demographics with more young people than ever. Um, and our economy was changing. We were uh, we have to remember that we had to dig ourselves out of old holes for a long time, that decades of, you know, decline. 
not just snow, but That's actual right. That's economic. Right. That's right. <laughs> economical. That's part of it. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think Buffalonians love their hometown. Uh, people in Western New York are very proud. But I think uh, anyone who hasn't been here for a long time can see visible signs of progress. So we were always, there's always Buffalo boosters, people who love Buffalo. Uh, nationally, people do think of, you know, wings, bills, and snow. Uh, but there's so much more to it. We have a very rich architectural history here. Uh, lots of beautiful buildings still in place. Um, incredible, incredibly unique spaces. We have Olmstead parks here, thousands of acres. Uh, you know, I think an, an incredible waterfront. So um, I remember once I was in San Diego and I had a, a Buffalo shirt on it, it had sailboats on it. And someone from San Diego said, do you, you guys have water there? <laughs> uh, yeah, we're on Lake Erie uh, and the Niagara River. I mean, just incredible assets that are very unique as well as the people. I mean, I think it's it's a, a very warm place. Uh, people are very friendly here, but I think the progress that's been made in placemaking, so you have revitalization of places that had decades of decline. You have places like, um, you know, the Larkin district, uh, the downtown district is really revitalized over time. We're working on the east side of Buffalo. I think the waterfront is transformed. It is a, a dynamic place now. And I think, um, you know, it's still a work in progress, but it's if you haven't been here for a long time, it's definitely time to come and check it out. You know, um, sort of I'm old enough to know Tim Russert and probably was the best cheerleader for Buffalo. Um, you know, if it's Sunday, meet the press. And uh, Tim always had a plug for um, Buffalo in it. Uh, now, the Institute itself, you guys are just incredibly busy. And I think you're, it, 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 it's in at least the draft stage, if not more, there's a whole report describing the kind of work that you have been doing. So let, let's touch off on a couple of those broad areas and then you can explain it in a deeper dive. So you talk about connecting the dots. And, and so what does that mean to you in the Institute and what does it mean for Buffalo? I think working with economists, we learn so much about how a regional economy really works and um, what an ecosystem build really means. So you can't look at any of the pieces of the economy in a vacuum without realizing sort of the interdependencies of the different elements of, of an economy and how it works. I think a holistic approach to regional economy is, is really critical. So all the cylinders need to be firing at the same time and everyone needs to be moving in the same direction. And you have to understand how those things impact uh, one another. And so building those foundations of the sort of, you know, ecosystem success, it means that you have to, you know, uh, not compete with one another. I think one of the things that was tough in Buffalo and the Western New York region was when you don't have resources, people really compete for every single dollar every grant, every small opportunity that comes out there, people start to cannibalize each other uh, just out of survival. It's like, you know, every not-for-profit, every small government agency, people really, um, you know, they wanted to survive. They felt the importance of their programs uh, and what their institutions represented. And it's, you have to put egos aside. It would seem to me that um, while that was always true, that COVID-19 and the lack of state and federal funding, you're going to encounter more of this. Yeah, I think I think the important 
element of realizing that you're part of a bigger ecosystem is really having more genuine conversations with one another about not competing against each other, building on your strengths and saying when the when resources are limited, rather than fighting each other for those few resources, that you have a much better impact if you can come together around those resources and build together. Uh, we historically had trouble with that because of the limited resources. So when the Regional Economic Development Council concept came up uh, with uh, Governor Cuomo, and they said, you know, as regions are competing, um, that forced us to come together as a region uh, based on opportunity. Uh, so when things like COVID hit, we were already sort of in the mode of collaborating uh, around a plan, around, you know, um, united ideas uh, that we were moving forward with. So you have to remember when we started our regional economic development plan, that was in uh, 2011, uh, we do not have uh, a regional body here uh, for, for governing. So right. uh, in a lot of ways, the regional institute, you know, tries to keep the momentum going on regional strategy. Uh, and that's a, an important role for us to have here. Um, I think we we were already, you know, we were in recovery mode as an economy to begin with, right? So we were digging ourselves out of big holes. Uh, we weren't, you know, how do you get to growth? Well, you know, people start to say growth isn't enough. Well, we were lucky to get to growth. We had to, you know, build ourselves back up again uh, to get to a moment where we said, okay, we're here and now we want to, you know, catalyze and get to a new moment. So when jobs, wages, and firms started to hit a new trajectory and started to say we're we're increasing, when young people started to be increasing, those were big moments for us as a region. So uh, now we're in another moment of recovery. Um, I think it's, but we're better poised as a region to think together and act together. I think uh, to collaborate in an ecosystem build. No, to to your um, to your credit, the data points with regard to a, the attraction of a younger group of people were starting to show up and they're obviously for your efforts or your efforts with a collaboration of others uh there's a lot of credit to be given for what was happening in buffalo you know pre-covid so um you value placemaking so why don't you first by defining for some of our listeners what does it mean placemaking? And then maybe some examples of how you're doing it in Buffalo. So great places attract people and, uh, and companies. So in an economic development perspective, uh, the better your place is, the more attractive it is, the higher quality of life that you have. So that's great public spaces that are very accessible, uh, walkable places, uh, not sprawling. So we sprawled for decades here, even though we were, so our population was going down, but our land use was going up. Uh, and we really, uh, as a region, weren't acknowledging that. And uh, I'd say the Regional Economic Development Council plan calling out smart growth, which sounds funny in our region, right? Smart growth without population growth sounds like, why would you even have to think about it? Um, it's a no brainer when you actually <laughs> draw it out on paper, but I think uh, conceptually, Again, you get into that survival mode and people say any development is good development, doesn't matter where it is. So that sprawl caused a lot of inequities. It caused a lot of, um, uh, you know, bad land use decisions. Um, and those are those are costly over time, obviously, what it takes to keep those places up and to build the infrastructure out um, and loss of farmland and other uh, other issues. 
big issues. So placemaking is creating great places. It's about concentrating where you you put the jobs uh, and where you sort of focus your investments on the economy. Um, water when you have unique waterfront assets or unique unique architecture, you want to build on those strengths and say you know you have the core of great places already, and you want to make sure that those are publicly accessible, accessible, and fabulous places. And that attracts young people for sure, uh, which is which was a target goal of ours as well. So if you think about the demographics of economy, you have to have those 20-somethings either staying or coming back because they're the ones who are going to be working the longest, having families, spending money on housing, uh, you know, have disposable income. We had an aging population here for a long time, which, you know, uh, it's it's great. <laughs> it's great to have any population, but I think, you know, they're on the back end of disposable income. They're not buying new houses. Uh, sometimes they move out of the area. So out migration is a very, you know, our out migration is actually pretty typical, but in migration is what we really have to focus on. And young people was our target for sure. So do you have a, a, a certain project when you think of placemaking that you're really proud of that you've been involved in or a couple? Yeah, I think we, uh, we were lucky enough to be involved in lots of placemaking. That's sort of one of our core uh, elements of mission. The one of the ones that we're working on right now is Imagine LaSalle, which is actually the Ralph Wilson Jr. Centennial Park, uh, which is a waterfront park. Uh, some of the the best parkland that we have. Uh, it's a city park, and uh, the Ralph Wilson uh, Jr. Foundation um, committed fifty million dollars to this park. So we've been involved in the in the community engagement around that. Lots of partnership there, right? So you have City of Buffalo, you have the Wilson Foundation, um, and you have a community who's who embraces and loves this park, um, but it's a new vision for it. It was an amazing thing to be part of because in Buffalo, we're used to sort of thinking about budget and thinking about the restrictions of that. So the reason it was called Imagine LaSalle was uh, we wanted people to open up their imaginations and say, um, don't think about the price tag just yet. <laughs> Let's imagine a new vision for ourselves, not limit ourselves. Uh, and what that means um, is to to really sort of unlock the, the waterfront in a new way. Uh, and people were, we had thousands of people replying to, to uh, surveys and participating. And we had, we were out there all summer, not this summer, <laughs> summer. <laughs> Summers previous, and um, you know the engagement was in incredible. There's a a great international community, uh, lots of um, uh, international population living in the surrounding neighborhoods. So we we had um, we had translated into eight uh, languages for those services surveys, wow. and it was just uh, an amazing experience. And it, so we're still in the design phases, working uh, with uh, Michael Van Valkenburg. And Associates, which is an incredible landscape architecture firm, really world class. So we were very lucky to be involved in something like that. And those waterfront spaces are, you know, the impact of those in the long term is immeasurable. So we're, you know, those kind of projects are once in a lifetime sort of projects. Um, so, all right, let's let's pivot. A popular word: um, <laughs> workforce development. Um, I think there isn't a section of New York State that isn't thinking about what do they need to do to upskill, reskill, pick your word. There's any number of ways to describe it. 
but it sounds like you've settled on a number of strategies for improving the workforce there. And I wonder first, what were they? And does COVID change any of your thinking about that? Uh, I'd say workforce is probably something that I'm pretty obsessed with and ha- and have been because very early on in the in the economic development work, it was so clear that labor drives everything. So businesses need workers, workers need jobs. That's how you get to economic growth for all, right? So I think, um, and where those jobs are, is, again, the accessibility of those jobs and the training for those jobs becomes a really important question that we have to think about regionally too. I think the best path to self-sufficiency is good paying jobs. So how do we uh, connect those things? What we kept uncovering every time we uh, would do, you know, the research was the mismatch. And it's such a, it's such a strange mystery of why, why there's, you know, unemployment and all of these unfilled jobs, like what, what is missing in that equation? And we kept testing theories over and over again about why that was happening, where was the gap? Who wasn't talking to each other in that equation? It's a very broken ecosystem in workforce development. And I've, you know, I, we've never really understood why. I think in the early stages of um, Northland Workforce Training Center, which is uh, probably what I would talk about as sort of the epitome of our workforce strategy. It's almost that, like a workforce incubator or, or it's like it. Yeah. So we what it started with a conversation around manufacturing. So when we took a deep dive into what sectors, uh, what we had to think about in, in terms of workforce for sectors, and we started to say, well, we can't solve the workforce problem, big picture, right? <laughs> like just too big. So um, we we started to look at our sectors and the sectors that mattered for, to our region. And manufacturing has been a legacy uh, sector for us for a long time. In fact, we used to be over-dependent on it. Uh, that was one of our problems. We needed to diversify our sectors. And I think in manufacturing, we saw these incredibly scary retirement cliffs coming. And uh, we, we, you know, we were seeing 20,000 retirements coming up in the next 10 years. And we thought, whoa, who's, who's going to fill those jobs? Some of those are really good paying jobs. They have a very specific skill set. And when we started to dig into it, uh, we, were t- we would talk to companies and they'd say, uh, the training that we have now just does not, they're not teaching the right skills. And then you would go to the trainers and you'd say, well, industry says, you know, we, we don't have the right skills. And they would say, well, they've never said that to us. Right. So we started, you know, we started having hard conversations with each other in the region to say, what, you know, have you just never changed the curriculum? Has industry never given you good feedback? Where is where you know are the relationships broken? And we had tough conversations with each other. And the at Northland, it was a holistic approach. So we built it uh, specifically on the east side. A hundred million dollars has been put into uh, the restoration of a, a, a manufacturing corridor. And it, that whole idea of what it meant to do the Northland Workforce Training Center was to say you have to think about all of the needs around manufacturing what the needs of industry are, and what the needs of a new target population for manufacturing could look like. So intentionally built on the east side. So that was the placemaking piece of it. Again, very accessible. People from the neighborhood in the surrounding area can actually walk to this training. It had to be accessible to everyone. It had to have you know, a series of services. We, we thought about every barrier. So <laughs> manufacturers or anyone in workforce development will say, 
oh, well, you know, you have to think about childcare. You have to think about transportation. The wraparound services. Yeah. Right. Every, so every time a barrier would be brought up, we'd say, oh, we got to have a solution because people will always use that excuse. And then, and then we just can't, we just have to run out of excuses as a community. Uh, so building that training center, very collaborative process. So we had Catholic Charities, we had Buffalo Urban League, we had Goodwill, uh, all working with us um, to do the wraparound services aspect of it. Um, and you, you just wanted to eliminate any barriers and say, you know, how do we reach diversity in manufacturing and a new population and a new pipeline? That was <laughs> the pipeline piece was the scariest because we thought, how are we going to catch up to that gray tsunami that's coming uh, with these very specific skills? So an industry came in and said, this is the curriculum that we need. So they, you know, it was a new conversation, but it took years to build that model. And then, you know, obviously we had the, we had the benefit of Buffalo Billion, which gave us the resource to, to invest in it. So um, manufacturing has become very, very topical right now in terms of um, due to COVID, uh, we found supply chain disruption. We have actually, if it's even remotely possible, an issue that Democrats and Republicans can rally around, which is reshoring of manufacturing or onshoring, a slightly different take on it. But the notion that there's this sort of once in a lifetime opportunity to increase manufacturing here in the United States, um, which is a, a, a nice you know, um, thought, but we're gonna need a workforce and talking to many people out there, they're concerned about it. So pre-COVID, um, a tech company like um, Google used to go, I think they're up to 23% of their workforce is right out of high school. And over here, uh, Siemens, huge engineering company, has, you know, I, I had conversations with them where they said, um, not always, but they often say, you know, we'd like to have them right out of high school and we'll finish the training. Where in the spectrum of workforce development, is it right out of high school? Is it the community college level? Is it the four-year training? Where has your experience told you we should be thinking? I think in the sort of middle skills category, which is maybe it's a, the maximum that you might need out of that is an associate's degree. So it, at least in our sectors and in the needs of manufacturing, four-year degree is not necessary, right? So I think uh, what we do at Northland is uh, we partner with SUNY, actually. So it's uh, Alfred uh, and Erie, uh, SUNY Erie. Uh, so I, I think the community college model does make sense uh, in this sort of skill building um, and middle skills uh, elements, I think, in tech as well. So we are also working on a new uh, tech academy in our region, uh, capitalizing on the moment that, that tech is a, a very powerful engine. We have uh, M&T Bank in our region, which is, um, has promised a lot of tech jobs right in our downtown core, which was a new commitment from them. And those opportunities represent an incredible uh, resurgence of the sort of mid-skills sort of category of, of workforce development. And that, you know, 
that's some training and sometimes an associate's degree, but it's it's short, much shorter term than a than a four year degree. You know, there's still value in that, of course, and there always will be. But I I think there are some shorter term goals that we could reach in workforce development in a much uh, faster time frame. Well, and I think also as as um, I was reading through your report, equity and finding jobs for those people who um, were maybe on a pathway to low income, um, we have to think about this very differently right now. And we have that moment, we have this disruption, which is when you get to do the kind of thinking that you may have finally gotten to do when someone said, here's a billion dollars. Right, right. Uh, I, yeah, what a unique opportunity to have. And, and I think that's part of why I felt so compelled to leverage all of those moments to say, we're never going to have a moment like this again. So how do we, as a community, really embrace this and uh, do all the hard thinking and all the hard collaborating that it takes to get to, you know, a unified plan around these things? I think this the it's a really important thing to think about uh, the diversity and inclusion aspect of labor. And um, again, it so you can have lots of excuses of why it didn't work in the past. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> we are where we are right now. And um, the opportunities that you create, as long as they're in accessible, either both accessible places and accessible timeframes for training uh, and what it means to sort of, you know, do diff- a different kind of community outreach around it. One of the things that Stephen Tucker, who's the, the leader of the Northland uh, Workforce Training Center, has done, he went to every church, every small business in the community, uh, did a lot of personal outreach. He goes to every high school and talks about the, you know, the opportunity that manufacturing represents. We had a whole generation of parents telling kids, don't go, oh, don't go into manufacturing. It's, you know, it's dirty. It's, you know, a yucky place to work. I want you to get a college education. So we, you know, we were not building the pipeline because we were pushing people away from sectors like that. And, uh, you know, that to our detriment, right? So then we weren't building, you know, the, the backlog, this, you know, massive tsunami that's coming of, of retirements that, People just, you know, if they don't, if, what a missed opportunity it could be because the, they are good paying jobs. And I think, I think there will be a focus of, of, uh, you know, a national focus on, on onshore manufacturing and what it means to keep it in the country. I think that's a real opportunity for a place that has ha- had a manufacturing legacy and has as many companies as we do. So, you know, I, I think um, I may have skipped over something. Do you need to, we need to explain to our listeners what was the Buffalo Billion? So Buffalo Billion was uh, a commitment from Governor Cuomo for $1 billion of economic development investment in the region. So in 2011, we had, we had done our uh, Western New York Regional Economic Development Council strategy. Mm-hmm. We were one of the original winners out of the 10 uh, uh, councils. And um, it was a it was a moment where we came together as a community in a, in a way that I think uh, made an impression on uh, the governor and his administration to say, "Ooh, Western New York was able to pull together a good strategic plan." Uh, you had people like uh, Bruce Katz, you know, great mm-hmm. thinkers, uh, thinking about regional economies, pushing for you know a big initiative that says, you know, how do you commit to a place in a way that gives them. A unique opportunity. So, you know, they have this this plan that they've unified around. How do we accelerate that plan and sort of, you know, put some real gasoline on it? 
<laughs> so we were lucky that the governor uh, chose to do Buffalo Billion with a B. I remember hearing the story. I, uh, it was Howard Zemsky, who was you know, the, the head of ESD later. At the time, he was our Regional Economic Development Council chair. Uh, and Christina Orsi, they, they had been uh, in Albany for the announcement and they were in the car on the way back and they, and their, their cell phones were dying because they had talked to so many people. <laughs> and I, and I was, I remember saying, did you say billion with a B? <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't seem possible. Uh, and then we had the incredible benefit of working with uh, McKinsey and Brookings. And we were the sort of local partner on um, what it meant to build the, the, the plan for economic development around that. Um, the first round went uh, well, and I think the, the governor came back and made another $500 million commitment. So that was phase two of Buffalo Billion. Uh, so we were able to do a lot of the, uh, engage in a lot of the pieces of the original plan that we, you know, you do, a billion is a lot, <laughs> but you have a lot of ideas that that come out of a strategy when you're working with, you know, powerhouses like McKinsey and Brookings and the community was just so catalyzed by that moment. Um, and it, it, it made all the difference in the world to have a level of investment like that to think about. Uh, well, I think it, you know, for all of us that were jealous, myself included, um, I think it was the alliteration that worked for you, which was <laughs> Buffalo right. billion. That's right. The Buffalo million never would have sounded nearly that's, as good. So that's true. Thank God that we start with a B. <laughs> um one of the things that I thought was really interesting in your in your report was the name Numbers in Need. Yeah. And I think that's a really, you know, we work with demographic numbers. We we love playing with numbers at pattern, but what does it mean for you and and how do you use that to explain things to people? Yeah, so uh, Numbers in Need is part of the John R. O'Shea Foundation's uh, mobile safety net team initiative. So th that grew out of um, the, uh, the 2008 recession. They really wanted to focus on uh, new people in poverty. So we, you know, when the recession happened, there were people who had no idea how to navigate uh, social services infrastructure. You had uh, people, uh, new, you were finding new poverty in new places that um, were unexpected. And they wanted to really explore that. So they ch it chose 12 communities. Um, and again, there's sort of, you know, there's like a suburban, there's an urban, and there's a rural look at, uh, across those 12 communities to really say what's happening inside of those and what it, what does poverty really look like? Who is the face of poverty within that? So um, when we thought about numbers in need, we wanted to have every tool to evaluate sort of, you know, what's happening in the social services infrastructure around those places where uh, poverty is really popping up or, you know, sustained over time. And that gives us a more informed decision decision on the economic development to side, side to say, where, where is growth really needed? Um, you know, where are services needed? Where should we be thinking about concentrating things like workforce development programs? Again, how do you get to self-sufficiency? It's good paying jobs. So I think, you know, really being able to pinpoint those moments together as a community and saying, where are the numbers concentrated and what can we do about it uh, is a really important exercise for us to stay involved in. It's easy to get caught up and say, oh, things are going better. <laughs> but, you know, there's always the acknowledgement of, of, of people who get left behind in these things. And I think, you know, we've consciously tried to, to focus on those to say, 
we, we got to keep looking at the numbers in need across the, the board to make sure we understand all the patterns that emerge. Well, and I think um, in light of the election, uh, some people may not have uh, may not walk away with good feelings about numbers when it comes to polling, but <laughs> demographics um, and tell a big story. And we always think they um, are you know, they're there if you, they're there to help you. And it really sounds like that's what you're trying to do with numbers and needs. So I, I thought that was just a great way to try to explain to communities, where are you? And then it helps you build on the future of where you can go. Um, sustainability is a word that is used in so many different contexts. And for you, what does sustainability mean? I think um, it, it does have a lot of uh, meanings to, and I think all of them are applicable <laughs> when it comes to uh, the economy. I think it's really about looking to solutions for the future. So I think it, that it, they're all futuristic things to be thinking about, uh, but sustainability is- if That's we, okay. This is a show about looking into the future. <laughs> good, so that's good. fine. Uh, you know, we do a program called Clean Energy Communities uh, in partnership with other upstate regions. That's a NYSERDA funded um, uh, initiative. And we want, uh, we want to continuously understand the impacts of different scenarios and choices that we make. So sometimes it's municipalities that are making those choices. So in the uh, case of clean energy communities, it's thinking about, you know, how do we gear ourselves more towards futuristic thinking and um, think about the different scenarios and the choices and the impacts of those uh, choices that we make both in the short and the long term. Where is our cost savings? Where are we thinking about environmental, key environmental issues? Uh, where does it make sense for us to sort of go deep on uh, thinking about sustainability? Um, it also has to do with, you know, green space and public space, which is really more critical than ever. I think uh, COVID really demonstrated the incredible value of public space, which was uh, great for me. So I worked for the Olmstead, Buffalo Olmstead Parks Conservancy for seven years. And I think the power of public spaces and the democracy of those public spaces, um, wh when there was a big public health crisis and people needed to be outside, boy, those public spaces were more valuable than ever. And I think um, what it means to have sustainability around um, your you know, the economy and the environment, those things all go hand in hand. There's almost always a triple bottom line when you really look for it. Uh, so we're always trying to think about those things. And I think when you, even in a, in terms of recovery, you know, there's an efficiency there that we should all be thinking about together in a sort of futuristic way. Are you a Buffalonian? I'm a native Buffalonian. Um, I moved uh, to Boston for a couple of years uh, and came back. I also come from a, a huge family, so I always joke that we're sort of uh, poised to take over. I'm the youngest of nine. My father was from the Philippines, and my mother was from Albany, New York, and they met. He came for med school, and she was a nurse, and he was a doctor, and uh, they met in Albany and then had nine kids. I have 28 nieces and nephews, so lots of family. Eight. Yes. Well, wait a second. So I assume with Thanksgiving coming up, this is this is not going to be the same for you. You know, um, we average 50 people at Thanksgiving. So obviously, <laughs> wait, you're not the governor doesn't allow that. I that's mean, right. So we're doing Zoom Thanksgiving for sure. We'll all be sort of eating our individual dinners and waving to each other. 
on Zoom. It's definitely a different scenario. For all, all summer long, it was a different scenario. That this year has been family gatherings very different. I, I, I'm well aware. Um, and I've left the best for last, which is innovation. Um, innovation is, it, it is the thing that sparks imagination. It's the thing that I think right now in the, the difficulties of COVID, of social unrest, of economic disruption, one of the things, and that's our theme, is how we can use this period to get to a better place. Now you've been experimenting with innovation for years and and it's a, um, it may be sometimes an overused word, but how can you overuse the idea of how can we be in a better place? So what are you working on? I think it's, it, it is critical to think about uh, innovation in, in all of its constructs. I think the willingness to try things, to risk, to experiment, to sometimes fail and learn. Uh, that's what what I think about when, when it comes to innovation. Our focus within the regional economic development work has been entrepreneurs and small businesses and what it means to um, really have um, a very competitive place for, the, for, for, for people who want to start their own business or who want to grow business as entrepreneurs. Um, how do you make a good match for the regional assets that you have? And how do you make it a very constructive environment for um, small businesses and entrepreneurs? Small businesses, when it comes to workforce, should not be overlooked. You know, it's they employ a lot of people. They're a really important uh, critical piece of the economy. I think it's um, it's also really when I think of innovation, I we talk about best practices a lot, which uh, is really important. But one of the things that I think a lot about is context matters in innovation. So you'll hear this great idea, and we've worked with lots of great national people who brought good ideas. But when you look at the context of who funds it, who runs it, uh, what's the ecosystem that supports it, you have to look at your regional context and say, it might be a great idea, but how do we adapt it for our region? Um, Sometimes you hear about these great programs and you realize it's funded by someone who's headquartered in that place or a, a massive endowment, you know, with a foundation, you know, with resources that we don't have. So I think innovation means, you know, those are great ideas and you can bring those great ideas in, but it's really, how do you think about sustainability in your own region? I think um, one of the things that we've worked really hard to do is leverage those moments like Buffalo Billion with our local foundations and funders. So Eastside Avenues, which is a really good example of that, so we had $65 million of capital hitting the street uh, in Eastside Avenues. And we, we thought that was great. But we, we said, how do we do capacity building within the Eastside community-based organizations and within the residents of the community uh, to make sure that that capital doesn't just mean great buildings without sustainable mm-hmm. programs over time and, and capacity uh, to sustain those programs over time. So we have 14 funders, six banks, uh, and the rest of them are foundations. Uh, that are that contributed more than eight million dollars to match that uh, sixty-five million dollar capital commitment, just dedicated to capacity building with community-based organizations on the east side, and it's a five-year initiative. So those are the moments of innovation where you say, um, "We want to do an ecosystem build. We have this am- amazing moment in time. 
Uh, and those are risky things, right? It's sure. experimental to do that level of collaboration. So 14 funders, you have, you know, state investments going on and you're looking at sort of, you know, where are the pivotal places within the East side to invest? And it's, you know, they're focused investments around commercial districts, small businesses, you know, teaching how uh, residents, how to do real estate development. You know, these are, um, you know, innovative concepts that we we have to try and sometimes learn from, uh, but it's a level of collaboration that's unprecedented in our region. So I think it's really important to innovate in those ways too. It's it's like I I often try to explain to people that it's okay to fail if you're <laughs> if you're in the effort of trying to get to a better place. I don't think we ever would have landed on the moon if we didn't understand that failure is part of the process and not to demonize people that fail, but to say, you know, good tribe. What did we learn though? And so it's so, it's so true. I teach an uh, economic development planning class in, in the, at UB uh, within the planning department. And I, I'm, I always talk about optimism in urban planning. I'm actually starting to put some notes together for a, a book on it. I think it's so important to, you know, be thinking as urban planners to be thinking about how do we how do we really evaluate and measure success as urban planners? Um, how do we, you know, capitalize on those unique opportunities that come up as a community? And you know, I had this heard this great interview with uh, Rosamond Zander, who said, you know, the power of positive thinking is different than optimism. You know, positive thinking is just like wishing and hoping it gets better. Optimism is working towards that collective goal. So I think. That, you know, that's a very powerful moment for me. That's why I think it's, you know, I would love to write a book about it. I have some notes together on it. I think it's it's a, such an important thing, especially in dark moments, to, you know, think about how you keep p- picking yourself up and dusting yourself off as communities and saying, how do we keep moving forward uh, even when things are tough? So it's, uh, those are important things to think about. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Laura Cabral, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, This is Jonathan Drapkin. This is Patterns and Paradigms. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.